Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's interview-only episode of the show, I'll be joined by Best Video Store Clerk, Rob Harmon. Harmon? Rob Harmon. Perfect. All right. A second in, and I've already got the name right. (laughs) Bodes well. Uh, For a conversation about the movie style and enduring cinematic appeal of John Carpenter, the writer-director composer who made a name for himself in the 1980s as both an entertaining genre filmmaker and an artistically ambitious auteur through such films as Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, The Fog, The Thing, and many other films that kind of straddled the lines between sci-fi, horror, action, and satire. Uh, We'll focus in particular on two of Carpenter's movies that Rob holds close to his heart, the 1978 slasher classic Halloween and the 1988 alien invasion social satire They Live. Uh, So without further ado, uh, I want to welcome Rob Harmon to the show. Rob, we've been trying to do this for a little bit. It's so (laughs) great to have you in the studio. Welcome. Hi, Tom. Great to be here. Uh, I was, I think, supposed to be on in uh, February, Uh, but as I think I told you, uh, I got really sick that week, and I think probably the only thing I was fit for was auditioning for the head exploding scene in Scanners. Uh, so it was it was better that I wasn't here that week. I but was I was in bad shape, so you're in tip feel much shape better now. today. Yeah, you're like, you've got your your I, Romero shirt on. Yep, you're you're my, ready. Uh, Dawn of the Dead T-shirt. I figured I'd dress the part. Perfect. Uh, but um, yeah. Well, we we've had. I mean, we are kind of big fans of Best Video here at the show, and also myself personally. And we've had both of the Hanks on to talk about the kind of history of Best Video, and especially their transition to being a nonprofit somewhat recently. But I wonder if you could, as someone who works at Best Video, first um, just kind of introduce our listeners to the store. If someone mm-hmm. listening has never been to Best Video, uh, what what is it? Where is it? What, why is it something that that uh, I would be so fond of? <clears throat> well, where it's located uh, is pretty simple. 1842 Whitney Avenue in Hamden in the spring, beautiful Spring Glen neighborhood of, of uh, Hamden, Connecticut. <clears throat> um, it's been... Uh, in a few few different locations uh, before where it is now, um, but the store was opened in 1985 by Mr. Hank Paper, and uh, he <clears throat> initially called it Best Video uh, because he had a very I, I'm not sure if he mentioned this he was on the on the show in the past right yes yeah uh, but initially the, the the name Best Video was because the the store was so small that he only had room for the the films that he could he could personally recommend which is is great and. Over time, I moved to New Haven in the late 90s, and I became sort of aware of Best Video, even though I lived in New Haven and I didn't have a car. Um, at that point, it was kind of the connoisseur's video store, and there were video stores everywhere, but people would go to Best Video because they just had everything. But initially, the original idea of, of Best Video in, in the mid-80s, when, when, when the video stores were kind of popping up all over the place, was that it was a tiny little store, and Hank only had what he could recommend. But as... They moved to different, a uh, couple of different locations and had more space. Obviously, he became much more ambitious and just kind of started ordering everything. Um, but I, I think it's cool that uh, the original concept of Best Video is still enshrined in our Best of the Best section, which was, is basically Hank Paper's baby. And it's still kind of the original, I think it's sort of the original heart of Best Video, sort of just our favorite movies that we kind of have in this one section that just gets tons of use. Um, so, so when, when Hank, you're totally, when Hank came on, um, he did talk about how he started with the kind of a group of 500 videos and this right, is video rental store, right? Yeah. And he wanted to make sure that he could offer like a sincere and earnest and passionate recommendation for each movie in the store. Right. Um, but as someone who came to best video, uh, in the nineties at a, you know, 15 years or so after it had first come into being in 1985, 
I, I wonder if, you know, how have you seen its collection change over the years since you came? And, and also what is, um, I mean, you've, you've highlighted the best of the best section, which I think is a really important area for yeah. anyone new to the store. But what, I mean, for someone new to best video, where would you direct them to give them both a good sense of like what best video was really good at in terms mm. of uh, its collection of, I think there's something like 30,000 DVDs and yeah, 8,000 VHS, like something monumental. And also how, how has <laughs> that uh, changed over your time working there? Um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, there, there are just so many sections. I, I, you know, I just tell people when they walk in the, and, and you can tell the people I started and I would like to point out, I, I, I first went to Best Video. The first time I went was in the late 90s. I went once. Uh, I, I stopped there, not at the location they're at now, and I just was blown away at the vastness of the store. But I didn't start working at the store until uh, 2010. Uh, I had moved to New Haven, in back to New Haven in 2009. I was at Southern and uh, <clears throat> got a job there in 2010. So my, my experience now stretches about seven years. Um, so and what, is, what is your job there? What has your job been and what, uh, what do you do now? I am a grunt. I am a, best, I am a clerk at Best Video. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, when I'm having kind of a rough day at work there, you know, things aren't quite going well. I say, hey, you know, it's 2017 and you work at a video store. How cool is that? So, um, you know, sometimes you just have to sort of remind yourself that, uh, you know, it's could be much worse um <laughs> at least there's a few of us left um so uh I, when people do walk in the store uh, as i was saying before you can really tell because and they've never been there before you can really tell that they've just haven't seen a video store in a long time because they kind of walk in and they're just they their eyes kind of kind of glaze over and they get quiet they get really quiet except for kids kids get really like kind of they start bouncing around because it's like candy for them. But for adults who remember video stores and they haven't been in one in probably two, three, four, five years and they just pull over and walk in, they just become kind of quiet. Even if they're coming in a group, they sort of wander around. So I, I tell people, you know, I, I don't really have a place that I recommend. I mean, I love just so many different... I mean, probably the director section is my favorite, but I mean, horror, cult, I mean, action. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, I just tell people just wander around, look around and, you know, find... Which, which you enjoy. And we should say that Best Video, I mean, even though it's, it's primary, you know, it's primarily a resource for video rentals on DVD or any other format, I guess maybe VHS or I'm not mm. sure how many other formats yep. you guys stock, but it's, it's not just a, um, not just a video rental store, right? Over the years, it has become a number of different uh, kind of sure. types of venue. It and is that's why we're still there. It's exact. So t tell me about some of the other things that take place at Best Video. And also, what's your involvement, if at all, in either programming series or in uh, participating in musical events there? What, what else is happening besides the kind of <clears throat> renting of movies at Best Video? Um, <clears throat> what was the question before... Uh, uh Oh, the, the first question. I, oh, I mean, so Best Video, you know, has this incredible library of of kind of uh, and curated library of, mm -hmm. of movies. But it also, you know, over the years, it has had to adapt in a number of different ways to make mm -hmm. sure that it doesn't go the way of every other oh, video rental yeah, store. Yeah. So, oh. what what else happens at Best Video? And also, <laughs> what's your what's your role in making those other things happen? Yeah, at so Best Video. The other things, I mean, that's 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 something I can only really speak to indirectly. But I, I'm certainly happy to uh, you know be a witness to kind of what's happened and um as i said before I, i'm kind of a grunt you know i'm sort of the uh the guy in the front lines i'm there putting away movies and and for me 
much of the joys of, of best video are, are are just the you know the sort of spatial relationship of the store and 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 just uh tactile relationship with the movies themselves i mean they really do i, I sometimes talk to people about uh <clears throat> you know physical media versus versus streaming and and you know you go around you pick up the movies and they're covered with these best video has these great uh employee pick stickers and and movies have themselves have have uh, a history a life um and uh i've just you know i'm there i'm kind of straightening the store and, and putting movies away and just talking to people and uh um so that's that's kind of my day-to-day but i love it and and that's one you know one reason why you know, was looking forward to coming on is just to sort of share this with people. I mean, it's it, at one time there were video stores all over the place, but there really aren't that many left. So I'm glad to talk about, uh, you know, just the joys of, uh, you know, talking to people about movies and just being around movies. Um, Before we came into the, Oh, and no, I'm sorry. Oh, and then just, to, just to end uh, that up. But, uh, but over time, I mean, through uh, the efforts of Hank paper to, uh, you know, having this vision of this store lasting and, and, uh, um, you know the the non transferring over to to being a nonprofit um, through the efforts of uh, Hank Hoffman and Richard Brown. Um, you know it uh, it luckily is has been preserved um, through largely through diversifying. Um, it obviously we don't make enough through uh, uh, video rentals anymore um, or individual video rentals. But now we've come up with these new rental plans, which are are, are really great. It's like having a library card to Best Video. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like fitness clubs, you know, the selling memberships, um, you know, how many people who go to fitness clubs really, you know, what percentage of the, the members actually use the fitness club each, each, each month or even, you know, more than a couple times a year. So, um, that's great. But also and what you were really alluding to was the, the cafe and the, uh, the performance area. And, uh, over time, I mean, I've, I've had a little bit to do. I mean, I have done a, uh, had a little bit to do with some of their screening series, but I'm hoping to uh, uh, start a, a cult film series. Uh, my coworker Molly and I were we are planning to uh, do a cult film series, but we're in just kind of trying to lock up a sponsor or a sponsor, a couple of sponsors. But uh, yeah, stay tuned for that. That should be on uh, Saturday nights. Uh, not not every Saturday night, but uh, probably once a month or something. Great. We we had uh, Joe Fay and Alex DeCoulis on a couple of weeks ago oh, to yeah. talk about their Strange Cinema series, which sounds like it's maybe a, a similar parallel project happening over at Lyric Hall in which they're bringing back, um, I don't know if classic is the right word, but uh, very, very fun kind of uh, action and exploitation and mm-hmm. uh, horror movies from the 80s, mostly restored by Vinegar Syndrome down in, in Bridgeport. But yeah. that, that actually, that I think is a great transition over to our conversation about John Carpenter. But mm-hmm. I want to ask you one more question about your background before we jump into there. Is that before we hopped into the studio, you said that um, Best Video wasn't your first uh, kind of movie-related employment in the mm. New Haven area, that you also worked at the York Square Cinemas on, oh, on yeah. Broadway. Yeah. Uh, how, how did you get to, uh, you said you went to Southern. How, how did you get to working at York Square and then to, to Best Video? What, what, was, what kind of brought you... Um, into working in did you work at a video rental store as a as a teenager or have you always just been a no i i mean i certainly wanted guy? to uh <clears throat> certainly people i knew in high school you know i mean i certainly had friends who worked at uh, i grew up in madison so i i had friends who worked at the the movie theater and and uh you know you kind of coveted certainly those jobs or people who worked at the local tommy k's video store or whatever um but uh york square was you know i I had, uh, I was a couple of years out of high school and, um, 
and uh, just needed a job. And uh, that was that was kind of my first uh, movie related employment. And I was a manager there for a few years. And it was awesome. It was, you know, I really and I, I'm, this is a whole nother other subject, but I definitely miss the old days of, of Broadway. It's it's, uh, it's really not the same anymore. Um, it's, you know, I mean, there's there's stores down there, but I, you know, I don't, you know, it's not doesn't hold much in it's, it's kind of boring frankly right i mean <laughs> the old a, days i don't know if you knew it back then but it was it was a fairly uh fairly exciting place to walk around at night uh, um and what did but, york uh, square contribute to the street life on broadway i mean it was just a just a cool old school uh, art house theater right there in the, the heart of new haven and uh, it had real flavor i mean it uh, it was pretty run down towards the end admittedly but um it was it was a jewel it was a really it was a jewel right right in downtown new haven and uh, it just isn't isn't a place quite like it now I mean, I, I only know uh, that era of Broadway through Elihu Rubin's uh, documentary mm. on Broadway, which I saw up at Best Video, and we've had Elihu on the show to talk about it. But yeah. it's a look at a kind of serious yeah, moment of movie. transition uh, in the very early 2000s and late 90s mm-hmm. for Broadway when Yale began to buy up all of the commercial real estate on the block and turn it into these kind of homes for international brands meant to appeal to a kind of more international moneyed uh potential student base to say that you know new haven is a town where you will recognize the shops the urban outfitters and Mm -hmm. um the other high-end clothing brands the j crew stuff like that right um often to the detriment or always (laughs) to the detriment of the the mom and pop stores um but let's uh let's begin to let's do let's do some john carpenter stuff because you're wearing your your dawn of the dead shirt not not a carpenter movie but uh, a a movie by george romero who is part of a um a kind of a horror renaissance or a new horror, a new wave of horror of American directors mm-hmm. uh, in the seventies that included Carpenter and then included like Toby Hooper and John Landis. Um, mm-hmm. But Carpenter is someone who exists a little bit kind of, he, he, he has a, a hand and a foot in all of these different areas. He is both a, filmmaker beloved by kind of cult film audiences but Mm -hmm. he's also a studio filmmaker he's one who is heralded as an auteur or a real artist of the cinema by a lot of critics but Mm -hmm. he's someone who has always fashioned himself as a um, an entertainer and storyteller above all else i mean for people who are completely unfamiliar with carpenter you probably recognize some titles like Halloween is probably the movie that people wouldn't know the best. One one of the most successful independent films in the history of cinema. Mm -hmm. Um, And also the progenitor of the kind of slasher genre. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, I mean, he is, he's someone who, well, let's, I want to hear, I want to hear from you a bit. Tell me a bit about how you, how you came to John Carpenter movies and, and what is it that you uh, find so appealing about him as a filmmaker? Um, well, just to get a little background, I was, uh, I grew up in a, in a, not, 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 not a super religious household, but a fairly religious household. And, uh, I actually was not allowed to watch horror films growing up. Um, in fact, we rarely ever, I mean, rarely ever, ever brought a R rated film into the house. Uh, we got our first VCR, I think when I, when I was eight, I think seven or eight, I think it was 85 or 86. So sort of when VCRs were becoming common in all American households. So uh, horror films for a long time for me were just a uh, kind of a forbidden, you know, just a kind of a taboo thing. Um, I have a distinct memory of uh, walking into a video store probably around the late 80s and just confronting this just life-size zombie standee of uh, Return of the Living Dead Part 2, I think. 
And I just remember standing there and just being like, just blown away by this, you know, this forbidden material, you know, and I just, and I remember like I would oftentimes kind of walk into the, the horror section at the video store and just kind of pick up the, you know, like I was saying, like having movies, having a presence, you know, just picking up the cases and kind of running your hand over them. They just, they, you know, clearly there was something very like, yeah, uh, just, uh, just, you know, taboo or forbidden about these things. That was, that's just so entrancing to a, you know, an eight or nine year old boy, especially when you're hearing about these movies all the time at school. Um, so anyway, that's, you know, just a little bit of background. So I, uh, didn't see a Carpenter film probably until I was 18 or 19 and it was Halloween, which is obvious. I mean, that's, you know, as you said, it's far and away his best known film. I mean, he's made some other pretty well known ones and I mean, growing up, I heard a lot about John Carpenter. You know, he was a name that you would, his name would just sort of be bandied about. You know, you'd see a trailer or a, you know, a preview on TV or whatever, you know, and he was in the mid 80s. He was generally regarded as kind of, if not one of certainly, or if not these, and certainly one of the kind of masters of horror of the time. Um, Even though, you know, his films were kind of falling out of favor by the, by the mid to late 80s. so I somehow I I, I must I somehow I I guess I must have purchased a or I somehow got my hands on a VHS copy of Halloween. Maybe it was from the video store or something. And I just remember watching it one night in my apartment here in New Haven. And I think I just as soon as it was done, I just rewound and watched it again, like that night or like the next night. And I think I watched it like two or three, four times in a like a week period, which is something I do. I mean, when I really get into a movie, I I just kind of want to watch it, sort of you know, a few times and I just was blown away by, it. and this was, this was a formatted VHS tape, but I could just, you know, the, the music and the editing and everything, it just, I wanted to know why the movie was so effective, you know? And, uh, you know, it, it started the slasher film craze and, and so much of, of what followed is just, is you can't even mention the same sentence with, with, with a movie like Halloween. It's just such a great film. I, I, I like to think of it uh, as the perfect machine. It's 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 just a perfectly constructed, you know, it's just a perfectly constructed film. Um, so I, I think it wouldn't change anything. I I think that Halloween is a kind of a perfect example of uh, how Carpenter exists in all of these different kind of filmmaking categories simultaneously, and that he, you know, growing up with someone um, who he was born in the late forties and. He, his dad was a, um, a professional session musician and a music teacher at uh, Western Kentucky University. And he's a kid who you know, grew up on sci-fi and horror movies, King Kong, Forbidden Planet, mm-hmm. but also grew up revering the works of Alfred Hitchcock and, uh, and Howard Hawks. And I think that those are two filmmakers who kind of come up again and again in interviews that Carpenter has given about his various influences, but also in watching a movie like Halloween. I mean, the connections between... Um, Hitchcock, Psycho, and Halloween just kind of abound. One in that uh, Halloween stars uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, who is mm-hmm. the daughter of uh, Janet yeah. Lee, who is the the star of of Halloween. But also in that sensibility of um, of that perfectly oiled machine. I mean, mm-hmm. of, of being a perfectly entertaining and well told story, yeah. but th- also imparting enough of you know a filmmaker's artistic sensibility and kind of felicity with 
the craft of filmmaking mm -hmm. that for adults as well it's as much of a joy to dive back in and kind of pick it apart as much as it is for kids to just kind of watch them and be scared not not that that has to be the dichotomy that you can only like enjoy uh and be scared as a kid i mean mm -hmm. i certainly i watched it again last night and i felt as much like terror and suspense and joy at watching it as as i had at any point in my life but those i mean did, is that something that immediately jumped out at you about Halloween, how it exists in both of those areas where you can enjoy it just on its surface by itself as like a really well-told and scary movie and then on the flip side as something that potentially has like such incredible density of, of talent packed into it? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, the, certainly the first, those early viewings of, of Halloween and, and <clears throat> a lot of his, you know, when I started to see his films more throughout my 20s, um, yeah, I mean, it's just the the there's this kind of surface enjoyment of just watching a good scary movie or, or whatever. Um, but, uh, I think as you, as you continue to watch them, yeah, there's, there's just an, a, just an incredible, like you said, density of material. And I think, um, similar to someone like Hitchcock and, and he certainly was influenced, you know, not just in, uh, uh Halloween, but in other films like the fog, which I think is, that's I can't remember. Do they mention Bodega Bay? I can't remember. I think there's sort of an indir indirect yeah, reference yeah. to the birds or whatever. But I think they definitely both, especially like later Hitchcock when you know when he was getting into his golden period in the 50s and 60s, um, you know, really was beginning to kind of envision his films as these kind of well-oiled machines almost. Um, you know, and at that point he'd been making films for you know 30 something years, so certainly he knew what he was doing. But it's almost like he was just all of this material, this kind of, you know, and you can, if you want to get psychoanalytic about it, all this repressed tension, this anxiety that he just channeled, it became just diamond hard, really, in movies like The Birds and Psycho, which are terrifying, really, because of just all of this just repressed stuff, you know? And, you know, I don't know if Carpenter really has as much of that, you know, he, he's he's not usually given that, that he's not psychoanalyzed in quite the same way, but they're you know, he he certainly, I think, was influenced by that, uh, and it just works so well in a movie like Halloween. And um, maybe, I mean, you're, I hadn't even made that connection about the kind of sexual repression being at the core of so many Hitchcock movies and so many Carpenter movies, because maybe the most iconic section of of Carpenter's most iconic movie, Halloween, is that opening kind of point of view, subjective mm -hmm. camera um, segment in which we see Michael Myers, who, if anyone isn't familiar with this, it's it's a story of a kid who stumbles upon his uh, his sister, um, you know, making out with her boyfriend at, her, right. at their suburban home in in Illinois in the nineteen sixties on, ha on Halloween on night. Halloween night, and then yeah. promptly picks up a butcher knife and begins to wreak some mayhem. Yeah. Um, but beautiful opening shot, you know, just the 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 camera work in that film. Dean Cundy, the, the director of photography, is you know. If he had done nothing else, I mean, he would be, you know, a hero to many uh, movie fans as well as I'm sure cinematographers just for the, the, just the steady cam work on that film. And but here's where the the kind of because this is something that went on to define, I think, the whole slasher film genre, which is the notion of, uh, you know, teenagers who are being punished for their promiscuity. I sure. mean, Friday the 13th is also a perfect example of yeah. the kind of sillier version of it. You know, teens misbehaving specifically around sex need to be killed because yeah. of their violation of various social mores. And in, in that reading, it's a very kind of conservative and reactionary genre. But there's something about yeah. Carpenter that that transcends that, I think, political kind of obtuseness of most uh, slasher films. Mm -hmm. And that's in what um, Donald Pleasance, who's the, who plays this 
horribly inept psychiatrist and how he just like he cannot do do anything to protect anyone he's funny how in horror films authority (laughs) figures never never quite seem to do their you know police if they appear at all are sort of inept or you know uh, and the scientists in particular Donald Pleasance can never quite quite (laughs) nail down Michael Myers sequel after sequel but what he does that he has a line about how he describes Michael Myers as having an inhuman level of patience and I think that that applies Mm -hmm. to Carpenter's camera as much as it does to the slasher in the movie that Mm -hmm. what you know much like Hitchcock much of the the dread the suspense comes from not the actual you know knives going into various bodies but exactly it's the waiting I mean how many times do we see Michael Myers just kind of waiting in the foreground we can't even Mm -hmm. see his head just his shoulder and we know that he is watching Mm -hmm. all these characters go about their very ordinary lives and I think that Mm -hmm. that's Carpenter managed I mean the same is true when we move over to They Live not a horror movie but Mm -hmm. um, another kind of genre uh, mashup but Mm -hmm. there's an incredible amount of patience up to a point (laughs) that Mm -hmm. Carpenter exhibits I mean he does not just throw us into explosions and and mayhem in the way that we are maybe conditioned to think of with these genres but he really has an eye for just kind of sitting back and waiting and letting the audience think about the images you know flying by them before we actually mm-hmm. get any kind of conflict yeah definitely um and yeah I, I would definitely agree i mean there there's you know certainly halloween was just such an enormous hit when it came out in 1978 and inspired so much lesser you know mostly lesser material i mean there there's a few decent you know knockoffs but uh in general most of it's lesser and and i and i it's it's unfortunate because i think a lot of the uh you know definitely a lot of the accusations about the slasher genre being you know kind of uh conservative or you know having reactionary impulses or whatever is definitely justified and i i think that uh Unfortunately, Halloween, I think, takes a lot of the flack for the, or some of that uh, is kind of blowback onto Halloween, which I, I, I just don't think it's it's justified. Um, uh, I mean, the film initially before it was when it was being written was the, the babysitter murders. And, uh, you know, it does get a, some, you know, some flack for the fact that, you know, if you have sex, you die, you know, which sort of became codified very quickly. I mean, within a couple of years, it was so codified that any audience watching a slasher film, you know, the moment they, the teenagers start taking their clothes off, they're, oh, they're going to, you know, they're going to die or whatever, you know. And they're right. I mean, in general, that was kind of what happened. But uh, I, I just think that there, there's there's definitely something much more meaningful um, going on in Halloween. I do think that there, you know, that, uh, he really is getting at something very, uh, you know, he's just getting at something kind of dark and interesting in uh, late 1970s America. And I think in the same way that Hitchcock can't just be dismissed for all of the different kind of sexual repressive themes that show up in his movies because of just the just the towering nature of his filmmaking and just the um, just the the his his meticulous eye for detail and his kind of swooping camera and mm-hmm. his um, attention to to character. It's it's it his movies transcend the the subject matter often. And that's why I mm-hmm. think he often, you know, he would, most of his movies are based on kind of second and third rate novels. He was able mm-hmm. to identify stories that he thought weren't necessarily um, going to be a distraction from things that he was more interested in doing with mm-hmm. with the camera and with the positioning of characters and stuff like that. But I, I interrupted you as you were, t- you were t- me, taking me on your John Carpenter arc. So now that we have a little oh, yeah. Halloween conversation out of the way. So you first kind of so, came yeah. to him in VHS store, but I know yeah. you rediscovered him later on 99 or 2000 and then i lived in uh new york city uh in my uh early to mid 20s um from 2001 to 2006 and uh i was fortunate enough my second movie related job 
uh, I was fortunate enough to get a job at the uh, the film forum on on uh, Houston Street, which is uh, if people don't know is just it's it's mecca on earth for movie lovers. It's uh, uh, foreign and independent films, but for me, repertory film, the classic films. I mean, I grew up. My mom, you know, loved m- old movies, and and she would just. You know, she would just watch these films, and o- over time, I would just kind of sit down and watch like Jezebel with her or whatever. And I got really into movies, really on my own when I was in middle school. So working at a place like Film Forum was just so awesome. But anyway, um, in uh, the summer of 2001, when I moved to New York City, there was a, uh, <clears throat> a series at uh, the Walter Reed Theater at Lincoln Center. They were doing a, a, a series of movies that had been sort of praised or supported by, I, th- I think it was Calle de Cinema. It was some film journal. Anyway, they had a, a double feature this one day of uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome and John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. And I had heard of both films, and I was like, hmm, okay. So I go in there on a nice summer day, beautiful, walk into the dark, sit in the dark for, you know, four hours. And I think I just emerged a different person. Um, I won't even got, get into Videodrome, which is another film that just completely blew my mind. But Assault on Precinct 13 was, you know, the, it was the second Carpenter film I'd seen. And it just, I, it just, it just blew me away. The, the music and the editing, and it's, it's such an incredible film. And it, it for people who've never seen it, uh, um, it, it was remade, right? I think, I think yes. they did remake yeah, it, but what... I, I, I would avoid, you know, I would advise people to uh, stick with the original, but it's 1976 and it's sort of a partial remake of Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo uh about uh mixed with night of the living dead i think yeah. those were the two movies yeah. they carpenter referenced um but anyway it's about a um a precinct in in los angeles it's being shut down um and they're you know it's i think the you know it's sort of mid-1970s so or urban blight that was you know spreading across uh the united states at that time and uh this police station is kind of packing up and the this high uh you know this high-risk prisoner is transported in and these gangs sort of surround the the uh the police precinct and an attack and sort of these group of uh basically outcast survivors sort of have to fight them off sort of like john wayne and dean martin in uh, rio bravo but it's it's just a stunning stunningly beautiful creepy action kind of with you know with to- overtones of horror film and uh so that and and just to quickly go on from there and i won't you know spend too much time but on, actually but, before, before you leave assault on precinct 13 i want i think that oh, okay. that is i mean uh carpenter is um for every movie that he's worked in n- not his tv work but every uh movie made for the cinema has been shot in i think panavision and mm-hmm. it's very wide screen and yeah. i think that he that is, is in in halloween and in assault on precinct 13 of all of his movies i think that format kind of jumps out at me the most as really imparting something special to the story being told Mm -hmm. and that this is a this is a format that is kind of best uh or maybe most iconically uh used for westerns i mean this Mm -hmm. is meant to demonstrate to kind of show the great carpenter loves westerns of land right and westerns are everywhere in his work if you look around you know the sheriff who appears in halloween he's wearing a tin star uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper getting off of the train at the beginning of They Live, you know, like a, you know. Monument Valley is a backdrop in Starman. Starman, right? yeah. It's just, it, it's everywhere. But in what Carpenter's able to do with using a widescreen in the uh, kind of 
dystopian urban blight of Assault on Precinct 13. It draws attention to it. It's sort of like, wow, okay, And then in the completely different environment of Haddonfield, Illinois, mm-hmm. uh, this, you know, mundane kind of milquetoast uh, suburban town, mm-hmm. it, one, it... It it makes the viewer constantly scan the frame looking for clues as to what sure. is going to go wrong. Because yeah. we know that if we're seeing this much information, there's bound to be something there. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially with with Carpenter, we haven't even spoken about any of Carpenter's music yet. But with <laughs> with his uh, this kind of plinking and droning and very simple but very um, kind of tone dread uh, um, mm-hmm. scores, we know that there 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 is something kind of lurking just around the corner. And in Assault on Precinct Thirteen and Halloween. Um, those, I mean, that those characters really suffer from that expanse of space, right? Sure. The, not like in a Western where, well, I guess in a Western, I mean, you never know where like the group of attacking Indians are going to emerge from um, mm-hmm. in, in a John Wayne movie. Here, we never know where the gang is going to spout out from, or we never know where Michael Myers is going to no. emerge from. And and that, I mean, that is, that's when we're talking about Carpenter as a consummate filmmaker and storyteller, in addition to being a great entertainer. It's those types of decisions that really, you know, they're kind of meant to be invisible on first view. I mean, you're mm-hmm. not supposed to necessarily be dwelling on like what the format of the um, visual presentation is when you're watching a movie, but they all contribute something. I mean, these yeah. are all very deliberate decisions. I mean, he's the undoubtedly. I mean, he's the consummate craftsman. And uh, <clears throat> when I, you know, began to revisit Halloween later on, uh, I, I wrote a paper on it. And uh, when I was in school, um, I, you know, I, of course, I was given a, I was given an assignment to write on genre films. Of course, I, I, I said, oh, I'll do Halloween and. Uh, just kind of going through and 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 watching watching the film again, I, I was really drawn, especially to like the opening sequence when uh, not the not the 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 scene when you see Michael My- or you see from Michael Myers' point of view is when he's a child, but right afterward when uh, Myers first arrives in Haddonfield, the just beautiful sequence of uh, Laurie Strode walking to school, and you know, and I and I remember I was watch I was at where I was living at the time. I had a roommate who was like next door, and I couldn't. You know, I couldn't turn up the sound. So I was basically watching the film muted in the middle of the night. It was like two in the morning and I'm drinking Dr. Pepper trying to finish this paper and watching that sequence. And, you know, I what I really noticed is that using the widescreen format there, it, it does really you're, you're drawn to the these these long tree lined streets and they're sort of dr- and it draws your eye off to sort of a this kind of vanishing point in the distance that's that's you can't really see. And it's 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 it it's almost vertigo inducing. I think, and I think that's what that's what Carpenter, even if he, that wasn't what he was specifically trying to articulate, it really does work because, as Laurie Strode, uh, Jamie Lee, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character is kind of you know hustling to school, you know there's music and stuff. But like I said, I was watching it with the with the sound essentially muted, but I could still feel this sense of of just of dread because, just because of the the way the lines and the screen and the shadows and the trees and everything. Thing. And I'm sure that that took a lot of location work, but it's it's craft. And I just don't think very many filmmakers today would 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 spend the time to do that. And that's that's what makes his film so special. Even though, ironically, his films are really treasured by this sort of up and coming group of filmmakers. And you know, movies like uh, uh, the uh, It Follows and uh, is it the Guest. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're the are heavily influenced by mm-hmm. him. But uh, still, I mean. I just think that he, uh, you know, he's the king, you know? And it, it follows, and more recently, Get Out are two movies oh, that yeah. also explore the, mm-hmm. the kind of simmering hatred and violence just underneath this, uh, this suburban kind of Pacific veneer. Um, but 
as much as I love those movies, they really rely on close-ups. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all, It Follows does have a few kind of 360 um, mm-hmm. kind of spinning camera tricks that help expose us to the enormity of the space. And, you know, we never know where the violence is going to erupt from. Mm-hmm. But as scary as those movies are, it's not quite the same as, I mean, there are very few close-ups up until the last third of Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, as you're saying, it's very deliberate. I mean, we're meant yeah. to kind of take in these carefully composed frames and then let that kind of work on our subconscious. As with, yep. you know, most great works of art, right? It's hitting us at a number of different levels, especially when you have a story being told and part of it. But um, I, it's it's 1240. Can I, are you down to stay for 10 more minutes? I, I, I don't want to... Sure. I mean, perfect. if you're... Oh yeah, we've we've got we've, we've got this until twelve fifty two. So okay. perfect, cool. Um, so I, I keep interrupting you. Uh, the uh, you were well, actually I should say you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, <laughs> New Haven's home for community radio, and I'm talking with Rob Harmon, who has hit you know he's worked at kind of a greatest hits of movie theaters and in the like Northeast that. Film Forum, York Square Cinemas, now Best Video up in Hamden, and we're talking about his kind <clears> of love and appreciation for the movies of John Carpenter. Um, Take me, take me over to to They Live. Let's let's start. Uh, let's start talking about that movie. Where did you see They Live as part of that Walter Reed uh, kind oh, of retrospective yeah. on Carpenter? Or when did you come to to that movie? Yeah. So I, I think I was just about to get to this. So I'm glad. Yeah, you reminded me. So anyway, I as I said, I had seen Assault, Assault on Precinct 13 at the Walter Reed at Lincoln Center in the summer of 2001, <clears throat> which was just such a blast and. As I, I lived there until lived in New York City till 2006, and I was all over the place. I was I was working at the Film Forum, but basically, uh, if I wasn't at work, I was seeing movies all the time. And uh, I saw literally hundreds, thousands, possibly movies, and I saw them essentially all for free because I was, uh, you know, you get kind of passes and stuff, and I just kind of just kind of had my foot in the door, and it was great, and people just kind of knew me around town and. Uh, so anyway, over time, um, you know, in different series is Carpenter films kept popping up on, 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 the schedule at Lincoln center. And I just thought it was really cool. There were, I can't remember. There was like a widescreen series, uh, you know, a few others, a science fiction series where they showed, I think it was escape, uh, escape from New York. Um, but, uh, they live was, uh, oh man. Yeah. I think it was the widescreen series was they were showing they live and and my friend was like oh man you have to see that i mean i was i would have seen it anyway but uh maybe he hadn't seen it i can't remember but anyway i just remember going with a friend and it just the, the the theater was almost full and just people were just going nuts and i didn't you know i i sort of i'd heard of the film and i i, I felt like i was in for something good but uh, it really is just if you've never seen it it's it's just an absolute must see it's uh you know, it's kind of a hard film to sum up. Uh, it, it almost feels like you, you don't quite do it justice. But uh, it, you know, it's sort of a sort of a paranoid action thriller um, starring uh, the WWF's uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's his best known role. I'm, I'm not sure if he's been in anything else. Um, the very uh, uh, <clears throat> um, undervalued uh, Keith David plays the plays kind of his friend and. Uh, yeah, it's it's just it's you know, uh, guy, you know, kind of 
trying to make his way in Los Angeles and kind of uncovering, uh, accidentally uncovering an alien conspiracy that's uh, controlling the world. It's uh, and the you only know, it's, the only way for him to to see that conspiracy is by putting on a special pair of sunglasses yes. that he found sunglasses kind of taped up in a, in a cardboard box <laughs> in in a church. Um, the the way that I came and also I should would you mind getting a bit closer to the mic? You're oh, a little sorry. Bit there. Perfect. Um, the way that I came to this movie, uh, so this movie was made in 1988, um, and I was watching a. Uh, this, this kind of goofy and very thoughtful documentary called A Perfect Guide to Ideology by Slava Zizek, mm. who's a, a philosopher and cultural critic. And he, it's, he goes through, you know, he does like close readings of a whole bunch of different movies over the mm -hmm. course of, you know, the history of cinema from A Clockwork Orange to some Antonioni movies. And he, he opens with They Live. And he's, he identifies They Live as the kind of perfect example of a movie from, the, he, he describes it as the forgotten masterpiece of the, um, of the political left in mm -hmm. cinema and that this is a character who is a um he's kind of a vagabond he's he's homeless he's moving from kind of homeless camp to homeless camp and he mm -hmm. discovers that you know the kind of brutal merciless capitalistic system that has um that has pushed him from city to city is not an arbitrary kind of construction of social relations that he has uh, you know been hurt by but in fact a very deliberate alien invasion i mean yes. these are <laughs> um, these, perfect for late late reagan america exactly oh, right uh, there's this wonderful scene where we see so he puts on the sunglasses he can see all of the different aliens around him and it's all the professional class the doctors mm -hmm. and the lawyers and you know they have these special gold watches that allow them to transport from place to place mm -hmm. yeah but rolexes of course i'm sure but it's one of carpenter's very few you know overtly political movies and mm -hmm. that you know he's describing a kind of brutal form of capitalism that is is comparable in his mind to an alien invasion in the yeah. way that it is punishing um, mankind and yet Carpenter never lets the politics get too far out ahead of mm -hmm. the the joy of the story because at the center of this movie is a nine minute WWF <laughs> scene between Rowdy Rowdy Piper oh, and Keith so David, good. in which they literally, you know, just kind of punch each other in the face yeah. as Rowdy Rowdy Piper tries to get Keith David to put on the sunglasses. <laughs> uh, can you tell me what what about they live? I mean, where where does this like fit within your um, your like love and appreciation of Carpenter movies? I guess it must be pretty high if it's one of the ones you wanted to talk about today. But I mean, when you think about this in comparison to Halloween or Assault on Precinct 13 or other movies of his that you love, this seems <clears> like <throat> a bit of an outlier in its, you know, overt satire. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's also a sci-fi movie, which fits within his mm -hmm. uh, generic history. But but how do you how do you understand and enjoy They Live? Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... <clears throat> It, it's you know just a a really special movie to me um it's uh <clears throat> it, it's it's certainly it's satirical elements um the, you know it's sort of uh it's just sort of joyous uh reckless abandons it's just so many great lines um yeah it's uh it's i don't know it's just a just a really fun movie to watch um and it's a movie that that like sticks with you in the same way that Halloween sticks with you. Mm -hmm. I mean that 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 dread of where Michael Myers is and, and what you know force of evil is going to interrupt this totally banal setting. I feel like that that stuck with me after they live too. Maybe in not as sinister a fashion, but mm -hmm. it's definitely you know I I as you know leaving my home after watching it, I thought. Maybe, you know, maybe if I do look at the world in a slightly different way, I will see um, all of the, you know, the ideology existing behind all of these different things flashing forward. I mean, not that that Carpenter's movie is, you know, and I, it's not like, I don't think many people are going to go into it and then completely see the world no, differently afterwards. No, yeah, but, and I don't think he would want that either. I think he's, you know, this is an, a, 
an action and kind of goofy action movie at points mm-hmm. as much as it is a kind of pointed political satire. Yeah, yeah. And uh <clears throat> yeah, it's um it, it never it never um uh, yeah, it never never completely devolves into becoming sort of a political treatise. Um and it's not like you said it's not going to it's not going to sort of convert people to, you know, suddenly seeing the sort of conspiracies behind behind everything, but it just uh it just works it just works on a on a on a sort of a subconscious level and uh yeah it's it's awesome and uh, it's you know it's i it's not it's not a I, I feel that like the film sort of loses a little something kind of in the latter latter stages of the film it uh, uh kind of becomes a little bit more of a conventional action film towards the end but certainly i think the first hour hour and 15 minutes or so of the film is just about just about the best stuff that carpenter carpenter ever did so you, I, we only have a, a few minutes left, and I want to make sure to ask you this question about Carpenter's um, approach to representing evil. As someone mm-hmm. who uh, is, you know, is wearing a Romero shirt and <laughs> and kind of uh, came to love horror movies as this uh, kind of forbidden cinematic treasure as a kid, um, the way that I, you know, really first started thinking about Carpenter and watching Carpenter movies in a serious way was just a couple months ago. Actually, when I met you at Best Video, I was doing mm-hmm. prep for a show. I was going to do with Matt Finer, in which we spoke about two movies that are very close to him, and he had picked Starman as one. Um, and nice. and you had pointed out that Starman, you know, I was like, I don't know how to understand Starman, and you said, <laughs> check out this this Kent Jones essay called American Movie Classic, where, mm-hmm. he had, where he kind of, he describes what it means to be a good genre filmmaker in the history of, of American cinema, and how uh, Carpenter is is the kind of, the la- he's a man out of time. He's kind of the last of his breed. But one, one quote of his that really jumped out at me from from that essay um is when he says that carpenter is one of the the few modern artists whose subject is the contemplation of true evil or to be more precise the stance that people take when they come face to face with evil his films are filled with moments of paralyzing immobility and dry mouth terror brought on by the realization that there is something new and awful in the world that there's new and awful in the world just just really stuck with me so (laughs) as you know someone who uh has seen a lot of horror movies and is partly you know really attracted to carpenter's um work because of his straddling of that genre do you see anything different in terms of i mean the notion of evil is one that's like very out of vogue in society Mm -hmm. right like there aren't you know we we don't really understand evil in modern society as something that actually exists there are always various explanations uh kind of social Mm -hmm. conditioning or familial abuse that leads to the various atrocities that we see but do you see something uh different in Carpenter's movies and in, in whether in the alien invasions and, uh, and its relationship to capitalism or in just this, you know, creepy suburban stalker, when you think about evil in Carpenter, what, what comes to mind? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I do like the way Ken Jones put that, puts that, uh, <clears throat> and it's, it's thought provoking. I mean, I don't think he's being literal. I mean, I think that, you know, many genre filmmakers who make, you know, science, you know, science fiction invasion or, uh, horror films, you know, will portray evil, but I think I think he is correct in that uh, Carpenter really does portray evil in in a very kind of tactile. You know, evil is here, and it's in the room. You know, um, Michael Myers is there. You know, attacking Laurie Strode at the end, and she's you know fighting him off essentially. And and it's cool. Some feminist critics have drawn attention to the fact that she uses like a uh, a hanger. You know, which has certain certain implications. Uh, uh, and a knitting needle, you know, things like that, like household objects. Um, Even a kitchen in, knife has, yeah, you know, sure. some connotations as a domestic tool, yep. but when turned on. 
Prince of Darkness, where this, you know, it's a, it's another really undervalued uh, uh, Carpenter film where sort of the, the devil is, I think it's sort of coming, he's coming through sort of a portal or something. And anyway, you know, just this kind of tactile, he doesn't, you know, the problem with a lot of like horror films that come out today, like I went to see, you know, recently the, the movie Life, which was okay, but it could have been much better. But the thing with a lot of genre film genre films today is that they they take all these, you know, they're con- the directors are clearly not comfortable with the material. Carpenter just direct he just presents it head on, but you know, in a film like Life, they they feel like you know hitting the eject button, and they and they're looking for all these escape hatches. And they're trying all this kind of trickery to sort of like, well, we're going to sort of like dress up the film a little. We're going to, you know, at, at moments, it's going to s- sort of be a little bit more like a, a human drama about people in deep space. And, you know, and it, that's fine. But, you know, I, I feel like if, if it's not your strength, just just tell the story, you know. And uh, there's there's a directness to Carpenter's form of storytelling. And, also- and I think that's what Jones is talking about. And, and he's completely dead on right. You know, like I said, he's not. I don't think he means literally that, that, you know, that he's one of the few directors who deals with true evil because it, you know, evil shows up in lots of forms and lots of lesser films. But Carpenter just, you know, it's here in the room. And what are you going to do about it? And like you said, training the camera on, you know, the reactions, especially in a movie like The Thing, where mo- almost the entire if I mean, just so much of the effectiveness of that film is just witnessing what happens to this group of of, of men, you know, just you know, sort of faced with this just terrible threat. And these are terrors that are inexplicable, right? Carpenter has this understanding that what what terrifies us the most is something that that we can't explain and that, you know, there's no rational motivation for why Michael Myers does what he does in Halloween, despite mm-hmm. the opening sequence, even though no, no matter how, like, you know, violently suppressed his sexual feelings are. And this is someone who, who one, just keeps killing and one, or, and two, won't die, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is someone yeah. who is kind of beyond our rational understanding of how people act. Yeah. But I, um, I think that's a, a great place to, to end the it's here in the room. What are you going to do about it? Um, <laughs> because that's that's kind of Carpenter in a nutshell. If um, I could do this for another hour, Rob. I, I so appreciate you coming by the studio and, and chatting about Carpenter. Um, where can people find out more about um, anything you're working on or this the ser- the cult series uh, cinema mm. cult cinema series is, is there anything you want to plug at the very end of the show um, you know I'm just keep an eye on the uh, keep an eye on the to quote uh, well to partially quote uh, one of um, John Carpenter's favorite films the end of the uh, the ending of the thing not don't keep watching the sky, skies but keep watching uh, the best video uh, website how about that tie, little tie into uh, carpenter and uh, one of his idolized films. Um, but yeah, just to uh, keep an eye there, you know, that we have an email list. Um, yeah, you know, I, uh, I, I try to write things from time to time, movie reviews and, uh, <clears throat> the cult film series should be, uh, it should be coming along at some point. And, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the things I do can end up there at best video. So, uh, that's, or that's one way to do it or, or just look for me, look for me behind the counter. I'm, you know, like I said, I'm a grunt. I'm there in my, my foxhole every Saturday night, you know, hoping somebody will come in to rent, you know, Cannibal Holocaust or Meet the Feebles or something like that, the Money Pit, whatever. Uh, so, yeah. Well, Rob, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, come back soon, and thank you for uh, for talking. Yep, no problem. Thanks. Uh, all right, coming up next is Elisa's Culture Cocktail, but first we're going to hear a little bit of music. You can find a complete archive of Deep Focus shows at deepfocusradio.com, and you can find just about every John Carpenter movie ever made in the director's section of uh, Best Video. So check it out. <laughs> 